Well, Corey, it's good to see you again. Glad to hear that you're making progress with your uh, with your practice. You're uh, you're asking um, a question that we should possibly go into a little bit um, in the sense of finding a balance. Uh, but you were talking about finding a balance between the fire and the ice. And that um, first off, what we can say then that the fire and the ice balance means that things are at a correct temperature so that they're neither fiery nor icy, but a convenient place somewhere in the middle so that things are not either burning down or frozen solid. Uh -huh. Okay, so we can talk about uh, that. Um, and I would say that both the frozen solid and fiery ice are often uh, not just the extremes and appearing to be polar opposites, but they're basically kind of two different reactions to things. And the reactions then are two things that we would consider unwholesome. And so let's look at the fire for just a moment in the sense that fire, um, both physically and emotionally, comes from um, contact and rubbing or uh, colliding or uh, mixing, that kind of thing that uh, when things are very, very cold at a cold temperature, they're not moving much, and ice even is formed with, with water. To where when things start moving, that temperature change or the move, that's the heat. And so what we're looking for is a balance between things getting too hot and them having to throw them out because they're too hot. That's where the ice comes from, in fact, is the reaction to the fact that things are too hot. And so we want to throw it out or get rid of it. Um, now, um, one of the ways that we can think about all of this is, is that the rubbing or the conflict or the motion in there has to do with um, the rules, or the rites, rules, the rituals, the way that things are supposed to be done, and that we often uh, determine what should be done based upon a set of rules, or uh, if it comes out of the parent, or it can be done based upon what we like, our feelings, which then comes out of the child. Neither one of those are wisdom. One of them is just following the rules to go along to get along, whether we like it or not. And the other one is not paying attention to what's right or good or even proper, but rather just what we want. That's where the conflict within the mind comes. There is a conflict between what we're supposed to do, what we want to do, and what's actually the right thing to do based upon wisdom. 
and that we uh, eventually want to find a way of choosing wisdom. But in order to do that, we have to integrate the other two parts. This is what we mean by then unification of mind or coming back to a wholeness. Because what happens is, is that there is conflict within the mind, often between what we should do, what we want to do, and what's the correct thing to do. These are the three. And that uh, the basic, uh, let us say, uh, hot dialogue is often between uh, what we should do and what we want to do without paying much attention to what's correct and the right thing to do. And so here's where that conflict comes from. And that conflict then, when there is a conflict, that's the rubbing together, that's the heat, that's the friction, is between what we want to do and what we should do. And if we can find a way of integrating that, into what's the right thing to do, then the heat will go away. Often what you could say is, is that the frozen solid can also be frozen solid, for instance, with fear, or frozen solid with rebellion. Okay, that we don't have any choice because we're automatically going to take the choice of rebelling uh -huh. we get into that that's part of natural um uh growth then in fact um parker and i just had a long conversation about it from the perspective of developmental psychology from freud to where it's the two-year-old that rebels you see in in very early life we are completely dependent we can't feed ourselves, we can't change our own diapers, we can't dress ourselves, we can't walk. We're completely dependent. And the tender young infant then doesn't have the mind yet developed to know distinctions and differences. All he knows is uh, uh, nourishment and not getting nourished, okay? So what happens along uh, about 18 months is the child begins to walk. We begin to stand up and walk on our own. And with that also becomes motor movements. And with that is then the sense of self. That sense of self then uh, also uh, starts to rebel. That in fact, the, the um, the generation of the self or the promotion of the idea of the self in the mind of the two-year-old um, is his understanding that I am not my mommy. I am not my daddy. That's where the I am not comes in. And it's also the nose. They, uh, the psychologists often call this the terrible twos. <laughs> and the word that is known for it is the word to know when the child learns the word to know that's <laughs> the beginning of the rebelliousness it's the also the beginning of the selfishness 
Now, if we stay in that habit, then our personality type will wind up being rebellious and we will have both the issues of the rebellious nature of no, I'm not going to do whatever it is that you want me to do. I know I'm not going to pay taxes. No, I'm not going to shut up. No, I'm not going to put my hands behind my back. You know, for handcuffs, that kind of thing. And so uh, that rebellious nature that we uh, that we have is often ignorant. In fact, it is ignorant. And it's a, um, a very fast reaction. And so it's this uh, uh, two-year-old um, no rebellious part that then rebels against all of the rules that we then pick up for the rest of our life. We pick up the rules, even though we don't like to pick them up, we pick them up partly just to rebel from them. And so here is where the basic conflict is, is, the conflict between all the rules that we have learned our whole lives and this sense of self that has a sense of rebellion built into it, and that we would rather take that position than, than wake up and take a look at both the rebellion and the rules that we're rebelling from and see what's really going on. So that would be the middle path. Uh, but if we uh, if we rebel against authority and then authority slams hard down on us or we're afraid of the retribution that the authority will put down on us, then the re rebel can get frozen. So the rebel can freeze with fear. He can freeze with inactivity as a as a rebellion. We often also have uh, the issue with that rebellion is the guilt associated with the rebellion. In other words, mom tells the kid to do something inside. He hasn't even said anything yet. But the first is thing that he says inside his head is no. And then the next thing he says is, uh oh, that's going to be dangerous. And now he feels guilty. And all of this happened inside the child's mind without mom ever picking up on it unless she's really slow. Okay, so this is the way that we want to begin to look issue is that we do have internal dialogues that sometimes these dialogues when we're adults happen really fast so that we can think of something to do and then don't want to do it and then feel bad as the rebel and then the uh, uh the fear and then the guilt and all of that stuff can happen within a second and we're wound up with a with a hodgepodge of uh, uh, of guilt, remorse, uh, and whatnot, only because of the thought of something that needed to be done. I'm still here. Uh, one second.
already. That does that does ring true with like what's happening because there's like a rebellion, no, then you do it just to kind of break the freeze, and then you run into the issue, and then it's like, yeah, that's a there's a source of conflict there, it's like a kind of a tension, and so this is all making sense the way you're kind of saying it and phrasing it, and it right. Okay, so the job then of the meditator is to begin to see this dialogue inside, sometimes happening so quickly that it's even pre-verbal. And then you can come back with the, uh, the reassurance of, wait a minute, that little dialogue that just happened, some rule or some supposed to or some item to do, followed by not wanting to do it, and then winding us up in a feeling of um, rebellion, guilt, remorse, complex like that, is completely unnecessary. Because at this particular stage or point in time, whatever it was that we thought needed to be done hasn't gotten done anyway. And all we're left with is a bunch of bad feelings for it. Mm-hmm. And so in this way, we can then change that uh, that thought process, that nurture into the nurturing from, from the critical thought of, oh, this needs to be done. Or, oh, you still have 500 files in that directory that need to be gone through. Or, oh, no, you do need to format that hard drive. Or, oh, no, we do need to stop for gas. We're not driving the car. And we're thinking about putting gas in it, you see. The thing to do about the gas would be to put the gas in the car when you're out there driving the car and remembering Uh then to put the gas in it. But here we are putting gas in the car for no reason at all other than the thought of it. And so we begin to look at these kind of thoughts that have to do with the future, thoughts of work to do. These are the critical thoughts. This is what the Buddha called Sila Vasa Paramasas, our attachments to the way things should be, or attachments to the uh, the rites, the rules, the rituals, the supposed tos, all of this kind of stuff. That sometimes you could use the word keeps us more abound in in inactivity because we're too busy rebelling from and not doing that which we thought that needed to be done. Okay, so here's where the change comes in, is that we have to recognize that these thoughts of work to be done are unwholesome thoughts, leading to unwholesome feelings. And so we want to start changing the thoughts that we're having into nurturing thoughts or into wholesome thoughts. And one of the nurturing thoughts would be whatever it was that we thought had to be done. We could say, hey, I don't And we're using the adult now. Hey, I don't have to do that right now. You see, the child's going to rebel against it just by saying no. But the, the wisdom of the adult is things are good right now. Let's not mess it up with 
giving ourselves things to do and then rebelling against it. Let's start having nurturing thoughts. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. And now we're back into Anapanasati again. Is that actually there's not much to it, but what's hard to get is, is that there's this system of thinking that we go through that winds us up in bad feelings for no reason at all. And that would be the fire. And then the response to that fire is trying to chill out, but we're doing that chilling from rebellion rather than from wisdom. So we can get chill as wisdom, or we can grow cold through resentment, or we can be in conflict in rebellion. Right? These are our choices. And it's better if we can wake up is to come back to the nurturing. That nurturing parent, you don't have to do that now. You don't have to go put gas in the car. You don't have to clean up all of those files. You don't have to format that hard drive. You don't have to do anything right now. That our whole society has gotten wrapped up in a whole lot of doing. And a lot of what we're doing is just to undo what we did do and then uh, do it again. In boot camp, the soldiers have to dig a hole only to put the dirt back in the hole, only to dig the hole back out again. Uh And so uh, uh, when we go through that kind of sequence, you can see that it's got that hard, it's got that hot, it's got that cold, the coldness of the resentment and the freezing with fear, et cetera, like that, to where there's a middle path and that middle path is warm and soft and bushy. And it's also uh, the path of nothing to do. Not much action needs to be done. That's the wisdom. The wisdom is, is that there's really not that much that needs to be done. But if we do things according to a set of standards or according to rules, there's no end to the amount of work that needs to be done. And there's no amount of uh, there's no end to the amount of rebelliousness that we could do for uh, all the work that we could think of that needs to be done that we don't want to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there must be some kind of. um subconscious because that's what it feels like because um that endless fire or it's like it becomes subconscious to the point where my body um it becomes a disorder of like anxiety and that's what really kind of had me so freaked out is that Mm -hmm. um back in 2017 to 2020 I had panic disorder, which is just the really kind of the worst version of anxiety where your body gets trapped up into these worrying, you know, resist or freeze and fight. And then it becomes like a kind of a, and it just perpetuates until you, it gets to a certain point of panic attack and then your body just freaks out. And Mm -hmm. um, it's all happening so subconsciously. And, but luckily this time around, I was able to sense that my body was, doing that and i was able to kind of 
use the practices to put the brakes on. And so it, it didn't become a disorder this time. And I don't think that it will. I could still feel my body um, getting charged and revved up. But then I just use the practices and things that I've learned to All undo right. the knot. This is really great. Congratulations for that. Now let's look a little bit, uh, uh, let us say, earlier in time, uh, backing up a little bit in the time frame, and we recognize that the body is getting tensed up and anxious and uptight because of something else. What is it? What what are the uh, the thoughts that lead to that anxiety? In other words, if you're thinking about unicorns and rainbows, you're not likely to have anxiety. But if you're thinking yeah. about the job, if you're thinking about work to do, if you're thinking about all the stuff that could go wrong, if you start thinking about Putin and uh, Ukraine or whatnot like that, and all the problems, then the body's going to get tensed up in response to that. So the question is, then, can we begin to pay attention to the kind of thoughts that are unwholesome that lead to these unwholesome feelings? Start waking up. Some, to yeah, it's some kind of like, um, it's like a, a purpose that I want to understand something of value and kind of give it to the world. And so I feel this kind of, um, it's hard to find the wisdom to kind of calm that down because it seems like the reason why it's so encourageable to just let the let my it's almost like a self-sacrificial fire it's kind of like i've decided that doing something for the world uh like kind of is i'm willing to kind of do i'm willing to do it on fire you know so i'm willing to it's this kind of um it always ends up me trying to do something for a good purpose or for a good cause that would mm -hmm. benefit me and other people. And um, so it's like I've ha I've been trying to do this for so long, and now I'm kind of almost able to, you know, um, I just want to kind of do something other than be a burden on other people because I've had to rely on other people so much. And um, so some part of me is like very driven to give something of value to other people. Um, and so it's it's like I very resistant to not to, to, uh, to kind of like I don't know how to because it seems so wise. It seems so kind and compassionate to do that, to give that to people. And um and then ah, but here comes the problem with that. Let me interrupt you to point out that uh, doing good can be seen from a position of wisdom, but doing good for most people is because it's a rule you should do it, and you'll feel better if you do help the world. And Look at how many people are out there trying to do good for the world. I mean, mm -hmm. even Putin, in his own way of thinking, thinks that he's doing something good because he's trying to reunite the motherland of Russia and all of that kind of stuff. 
and a whole lot of other people say that all what he's doing, he may think it's good, but I don't think it's good. And so I've got to go do something to resist him. And so now you have two forces doing good, each pushing very hard against each other, trying to destroy each other. The Republicans, regardless of their thought process, one of the things that you can understand is, is that they get excited because they want to fix what they think is broken. And the Democrats, never mind what thought processes that they have, the underlying point is, is that the Democrats are trying to fix what they think is broken. We, in our society, we have that. It's almost like an, a built-in obligation to society, except that it's not built in, it's added on, it's piled on, and who piles it on are the very people who think that you too should fix this broken world. Uh-huh. Okay, so you're under some sort of internal mandate to go out and help people to fix the world. Yeah, or just to do something that is other than use up resources, kind of contribute in some way Mm -hmm. so that I'm not just using everything or something like that. All right. Here's the point. Who told you that? Pretty much everybody. Yeah, Yeah. pretty much everybody. So everybody is so pretty much everybody is stuck in that delusion. Yeah. It's okay for you to reuse resources. Uh That's what the planet Earth is. It's the resources that we need to stay alive. And you have kind of an obligation to stay alive, but you don't have an obligation to go fix everybody else's life. You do not have an obligation to fix politics. We don't have an obligation to fix um, society or to fix world hunger. That in fact, much of the problems of world hunger comes not from people wanting other people to starve to death. Almost all of world hunger comes from the fact that people feel hungry. And so they're going to do whatever they can do to make sure that there's no hunger. Right. But the funny part of it is, is that whole mentality winds up that more than half of the food that is produced in the world gets thrown out. It gets just it's garbage. Uh-huh. It's, it's not eaten. OK, one of them would be for the a tomato farmer to say, my job is to provide good tomatoes. Which means that he's going to throw out or dispose of about 10 to 15 percent of his tomatoes because they don't even fit the uh, the farmer's criteria for good tomatoes. A tomato is a tomato until it becomes a good tomato or a bad tomato, and then the bad tomatoes become trash or rubbish. When in fact they could possibly have been quite delicious. So I guess the issue is. Um... It's some kind of, because I've had that thought before, that somehow there is a kind of um, um, 
some kind of wound that needs to be healed or some kind of, um, I don't want to say ego thing, but that's what it, it feels like. There is some kind of like, um, some something that needs to be seen as good or, um, that's not what I'm trying to say. The thing that I also want to tap on other than what I was just trying to say is um, I could see that there is a bad way that we we put this unnecessary pressure on ourselves to kind of uphold values that maybe society or other people think are good. And so th there's a there's a bad way to be pressured by what we should do and what and what culture and everyone else has told us to do. But then the thing that kind of um, really is a propellant or a, a thing that kind of that I would like to try and get to is there um, the idea of contribution or doing something in in a way that doesn't make me suffer because obviously it's like I'm realizing very quickly that if my all of my energy gets exhausted by this unnecessary pressure then I can't really do anything that is going to be um, like I could imagine myself getting into a sustainable house and growing my own food. And um, in that way, I'm going to be able to kind of fix that ego need to contribute because it's not necessarily about contributing. Contributing more than what I take has to do with some kind of self-esteem or lack of value. And so I feel that I am draining other people or the earth and that I need to restore that. And so some people might think that they restore the value or that they give more than they take by creating a business. And when the whole world does that, what happens is that the earth and, it, and things kind of get out of balance because everyone's mm -hmm. trying to do the right thing and it just ends up polluting the oceans. And so I get that there's a kind of, there's a balanced way to be sustainable. And then, um, so that's one thing is like, I, and I'm trying to kind of get to that point of living sustainably and being in tune with nature and not worrying about saving the world, but just doing my own part to kind of live sustainably. And that will kind of reduce the pressure, the unnecessary pressure, and I'll be able to just kind of live in peace. But also I feel a, like a deep kind of desire or some kind of, um, the thing that keeps coming to mind is like the Buddha or other Arahants or Bodhisattvas, they, give something back in a way that doesn't it doesn't come from pressure or pain or wounding and they're able to contribute something of value like that without doing it in a in a in a way that kind of is destructive or something and so that kind of valuable contribution is kind of what I'm talking about or what I'm hoping to aspire to to where I'm not pressured and I'm not suffering and I'm able to kind of do it with the clear mind and be healthy and to okay. give back something that helps someone else in a certain way like that. Right. Here's here's the problem with this, that your way that you're speaking about it is, is that you're mixing things up. It's a mixed bag. And okay. what we have to do is sort of separate things out. In other words, you're not going to be able to deal with the world comfortably, easily, and happily until you can deal within your own internal world comfortably, easily, and happily. And if you spend your time dealing with getting your own world cleaned out so that you have your own easy, happy life, 
one of the things that you're going to have to clean out is that rule that, oh, you, but you've got to go clean out the world, too. Uh-huh. Okay. That this is one of the rules that we've all picked up. And it's a rule that is almost always more problematic than valuable. And that is, is that things are broken and they need to be fixed. The answer is nothing is broken and nothing needs to be fixed. And we need to find that kind of an attitude. So when you then can gain that attitude, of everything is okay, nothing is broken, nothing needs to be fixed, and you can get that mentality going. Then when you start dealing with other people, you're going to immediately recognize that those other people are coming to you with the position of things are broken, things need to be fixed. Here, uh, here's a hammer and some nails, go Pound on that board, right? Okay. Everybody's got a way of fixing the world. So there, uh, in that regard, you have a new kind of an obligation. This is what we refer to as the duty to the Dhamma. And our duty to the Dhamma is to point out to ourselves and to others in a happy, harmonious, beautiful way that there is no problem. And the way that we can deal with other people is instead of trying to fix them or their attitude. In other words, somebody comes to you with a great big problem and started trying to convince him that he's got no problem. Now you've picked up the problem of convincing him that there is no problem. Better way to do that is by having no problem at all, and then you can deal with him happily and tease him and be joyous with him and let him come into a state of joy and get whatever he had on his mind out of his mind. Okay, so... We do have a sense of the duty to the Dhamma, but our sense of the duty to the Dhamma is to help others to understand that other than their own duty to the Dhamma, which is not much, they don't have a duty to the world. They don't have a duty to society. The only duty that we have is to put down all of the other duties. That's the real duty. Your real duty is to stop having other duties that's going to fix the world. Look how many, we've got more than 7 billion people out there, and every one of them is out there trying to fix the world. You'd think that they'd get some progress someplace. But no, sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down, sometimes you've got a civilization, sometimes you've got a desert. I mean, this is just how things are. And it has a lot to do with the fact that people are in conflict with each other because they have different ideas about what needs to be done. But they all have the position that something needs to be done. Everybody has a position, something's got to be done about this. 
And the reality is, is that what really needs to be done is to get it off your mind. There really is no problem. And we can help other people to understand that there's no problem simply by being joyous with them. But the only way that we could do that is by having that joy. And the joy comes from the satisfaction that whatever needed to be done has been done now. Uh-huh. And there really is. So everything else is just a toy to play with. That there is no work to do. There are only toys to play with. I guess it's just that it seems like the people who I've looked up to and valued, I've always, um, and maybe being inspired by them has kind of made me want to follow in their footsteps to some degree. And I can see the problem of me wanting to do something like that is kind of impeding me from being present. And so the desire to do good is almost stopping me from being able to do good. And somehow, um, it's just so hard to let go of that desire to, um, like I just, there's always this voice telling me that there is something positive that I can learn and something positive that I could share and something that I could do. And I could see how it resolves, how it revolves around a kind of, um, a desire to be seen in a certain way or, uh, it's, there mm-hmm. is the desire for it. And so, um, I guess worrying about what I can do or what I should do is, um, isn't really something I should worry about because when I am joyful and in the present moment and when I'm able to activate this kind of state, you know, maybe things will happen, but they won't happen because I planned them out and they won't happen because I worried about them. Um, so like, why do we need anything to happen? Yeah. Why do we need something to happen? It just seems like that's part of being a, an active living being. There's this need or this feeling of. Well, that's part of the program do. that you got. That's part yeah. of the program. The reality is, is that things don't necessarily need to happen. That we need to, in fact, uh, the correct way to do it is to recognize that need is artificial. It's an artificial need, and we are filled with artificial needs. Those artificial needs then can be called the rules. Because they're not needs at all. They're just rules. You picked them up. Things should be better. But guess what? Things are already okay. That's the difference in this teaching that many people still have so much trouble with because our society keeps telling us, oh, there is so much left to be done. I guess it just feels like there's nothing else really to do other than to do something. You can relax and do things. You can do things or relax. You could do one or the other, or you can kind of relax and end up doing things anyways. And so... Um, I guess the thing is that I'm kind of, I've, I've felt like sometimes when I get into this state of being very present and relaxed and joyful, some part of me, um, it's like I begin to want to do things, but not necessarily, 
long term. It's like I it's like one second away from something happening, I will have the desire and it's like I could feel what I'm wanting to do. And so this kind of phenomenon of wanting things or doing things is basically moving. It's like I this can feel like a very like good I... point. Let's 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 capitalize and look at this for just a moment. And that is, is that here you are all hung, hanging out. Everything is really good, kind of watching the breath and watching the thoughts. And then a thought will come. Oh, I've got to go do something. Uh -huh. OK, the thought of uh, maybe the floor is dirty and I've got to clean it, whatever it is that happens. These are the thoughts that are pulling us out of our state of relaxation. These are the unwholesome thoughts that we need to see. But the they, thoughts of work to do. But it feels like fun and excitement. It's like, um, oh, I'd, I'd love to write this thing or I'd love to kind of, um, it's excitement and it's happy and it's joyful. And the, so the, those wholesome thoughts of something to do are more problematic. And I don't understand exactly how those work. Ah, but then the next thought can be, yes, but it's just as much fun for me to sit here and not do it. Oh, so you turn a wholesome thought into a more wholesome thought. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't think to do that. I've always thought unwholesome thought will reverse that one quite clearly. But I've always, it always feels like the wholesome thought is like, oh, well, if the wholesome thought is, but now I can see it. I could kind of see how that wholesome thought ends up becoming a kind of craving or something. And then I just end up doing that over and over and then I get pulled out of the state and then mm -hmm. I'm back into craving and doing and kind of running on the treadmill again. Yes, exactly. So the, uh, the little teaching that the Buddha uh, has is the, is the teaching of gratification, danger and escape. And so we're sitting here with nothing to do, no place to go. And then we'll have a thought that comes up. Wow, wouldn't it be good or wouldn't it be nice if I get this? Okay, and we take the gratification in the activity of doing something. And now I'm inviting you to begin to see the danger in that. Mm -hmm. That we do have the gratification in um, that doing. But the danger is, is that it's going to pick you up out of the chair and make you go across the room and, and get to work. And then the beautiful mind state that you're in now gets rotted away. That's the danger. The danger is, is that the activities now become the activity of the mind. Rather than uh, appreciating being in the here now, so we get stuck into activity. And so being able to see the dangers in those thoughts. That in fact, it's quite easy for you uh, or anyone to let us say that we start with the state of everything is OK, everything is wonderful, no place to go, no place to do. So that's a, the beginning point. And then a thought will come up. Oh, you got to go wash the dishes. And that's going to also be kind of a pleasurable thought. Because, oh, yeah, I can do that. And we take gratification yep. out of it. Another possibility is, is that we we come up with, uh, uh, let us say, the thought of another person and something that they need to hear. 
and we take gratification in telling them in our minds that you need to hear this, right? That's the gratification that we take, and we do get gratification from these things. In a bigger way, we can see that there's gratification in anger. Why do people get angry? It's because they feel powerful when they're angry. We get gratification from it. Right? So now we're going to start looking at that things also are not just gratifying, but that they're also possibly dangerous. And uh. if we could see the danger in that anger, then we're not going to be going automatically with the gratification, that we're going to start bringing some wisdom in there and perhaps not get angry or not think about telling that guy off or uh, saying the dishes can wait right now. I don't have to uh, take my pleasure of washing the dishes right now, that in fact I can take the pleasure right now of I don't have to wash the dishes right now. Okay. Okay, so this is where we mean about those, those thoughts of things to do, those thoughts of rules, those thoughts of things that need to be done or have to be fixed. And then when we think of them, yes, you can take a gratification from that. But also you could take the gratification from that. And then the next thought will be, but I don't want to do it. And now we're in an internal conflict. Do you go do it or not? Right. But if we can wake up to that, we can say, I don't need that dialogue. I don't need to do, do that. I can just sit here and come back into my state of joy and relaxation. So that means now that we're beginning to pay attention to those very, very quick thoughts that come up. Thoughts of doing something. That when the mind wanders away from the breath, we, we want to be able to catch it so that we can come back to the breath. But we want to uh, do that before the mind actually wanders away into that dialogue of should I tell that guy off or not? Or should I wash the dishes or not? Should I get up from my comfortable chair to go wash the dishes right now? Better time to wash the dishes is when they're right there. When you're right in front of the dishes and you see that dish is dirty, then I can wash that dish. But sitting when meditation, thinking about dirty dishes and thinking about I would be better off if I got the dirty dishes washed, that's actually an unwholesome thought. Uh-huh. And we can begin to see that we, we thought it was a wholesome thought because we took gratification from it. But uh, if we can see that, oh, but I took gratification from that thought, I can take a new gratification from a new thought. And the new thought is the dishes can wait. And now I have a different kind of gratification. And now I'm not up and going off to disturb my meditation. And so this is a way of practicing, practicing coming back to the meditation over and over again, because these scatterbrained thoughts literally are just going to scatter our brain with activities to do. And so whenever we think of something like that, we can say, never mind, let me come back into the here now 
let's use some wisdom here rather than having this dialogue between the, the child who has to do that activity, the uh, washing the dishes, and the rule that the parent came up with, you should wash the dishes. Mm -hmm. So the thought is really, I could go do the dishes in three seconds, and the deeper thought, if I was able to see it, is that if I do the dishes now, I won't have to do them later. And I'm not going to have to wake up and think, oh, gosh, I got to do the dishes. So there's a kind of succession of like, it's like my brain is kind of coaxing me into, oh, I should write this. I should work on this because I'm going to end up doing it later. And so I could kind of see how that it's like that's how you first get taken out of the present moment. Because your mm -hmm. brain is kind of like thinking about something that's only two seconds away. And it doesn't really feel like a thought so much. It's kind of like, um, feels like my body is about to move there anyways. But it, I can see now that it kind of, there's a subconscious or a rapid thought. And then it's, it's almost like the thoughts become subconscious. But I could, when I'm looking back on it, I could kind of remember like um, differences in, gratitude and mental uh awake like it's like the thing that i wanted to say earlier is um the ex the gratification becomes externalized so i get gratification from doing the dishes and i get gratification from instead of being gratified about keeping my mind where i want to and keeping my mind in the present moment and so <laughs> there's a kind of um this is that kind of balancing that I was kind of feeling subconsciously. I could feel my balance being in the mind in the present moment, and I could feel something taking me elsewhere. And it's, um, yeah, there's a conflict, and uh, it's kind of confusing how the whole thing works. But trying to find out how to live in this balanced state and live without the mind so I could still go do things, but not be tormented and kind of live in gratitude. Right. Okay. So let's go back to that point earlier that you were making about that you wind up in anxiety. How you wind up in anxiety is by having the thoughts of, oh, the dishes need to be done. And I will feel better if I go do them. And then perhaps before we even get up, we have the thought, oh, well, I've got to go put gas in the car. Oh, and I'll feel good if I do that. And before I get up to do the gas, I think about, oh, I've got to go clean the floor. And so now we've had clean the floor, gas the car, wash the dishes. And we haven't actually done any of them but now the mind is getting agitated and uptight about all the stuff that needs to be done. But the initial was uh, gratification. Oh, I'll feel better if I do the dishes and then we don't do the dishes. Then I'll feel better if I put gas in the car and I'll feel better if I do that email and I'll be I'll feel, oh, I ought to format that hard drive or oh, I need to go do this, that and the other thing. And we wind up making the list of to do things that we don't do. And as that list becomes longer and longer, sometimes uh, uh, items on it keep getting put back on the list over and over again. And you wind up with this big, heavy list of stuff to do that we call anxiety. Yeah. So I have an endless to do list. 
you have an endless to-do list, okay? So we need to start changing that around by to start intentionally taking stuff off the list. What are we going to take off the list? Whatever we think of that should be on that list, we're going to say, ha-ha, I don't have to do that right now, and we can scratch that off our mental list. Uh -huh. This is a way of understanding that when we don't have any real activities going on or our actions, this is the kind of action that brings the end of action. In other words, that little bit of, uh, of wisdom in there. Oh, I'm going to just sit here and relax. I'm not going to think about emails. I don't have to think about that. I can think about what is in front of me. I can think about the beautiful nature that I'm in what's real right now but we uh the way that we were raised was you got to think about everything you got to get everything done anything that is undone is going to get punished and so we got to get it all done that's our society and that's why the society is so uptight is because everyone in the society has got a long to-do list and they would rather feel anxiety than end in and then end their to-do list. Can you imagine somebody who's got a long to-do list and they finish everything on the to-do list? Is that possible? Or while they're doing one thing on their to-do list, they're adding new things to the to-do list. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So putting things on the to-do list is the habit itself. Of thinking the things to do and putting them on the to-do list and when that to-do list gets long what we wind up with is not gratification it's anxiety for all the things that haven't been done so okay. i advise you to start looking at the items that you keep putting on the to-do list Okay. Every item that you put on the to-do list, you could come back with, not now. Not now. Yeah. Don't have to put that on the to-do list now. That, in fact, what we can do instead is start thinking about having a don't do that list. Don't do it. That's uh -huh. the list that we want to start making, is the list of don't do that. Because if I really need to do it, I'll just spontaneously do it, right? It's like I'll I'll know or something will kind of, or I'll make a plan of it if it's really important. But it seems like the issue is that it's almost like drilled into us that we need to have a to-do list because we're going to have a lot of free time and we always need to have something to do because we're going to get old or we're going to get sick or we're going to break our legs and we got to prepare for it or something like that. Ah, except that uh, how can you prepare for a broken leg? Uh, get health insurance. <laughs> Have a job that gets health insurance or something like that. Okay, all right. There's another way of handling a broken leg. Yeah. That is setting it in a cast yeah. and then taking care of it. Moment it by heal. moment yeah. and let it heal. And you can right. handle it. So my idea about how do I handle a broken leg in advance is by saying, when I do get a broken leg, I can handle that. And now there's no insurance, there's no job, there's no all of that other stuff that has to be done. 
So the you issue is that I can handle a broken leg. I will get the medical attention that I do need, and I don't have to do anything in advance. I can handle it. Anything that needs to be done about broken legs, I've already done, and there is nothing left to do about broken legs. An interesting one for me is that I'll, I will put things on there of like, um, I, I need to visit my grandparents more, or I need to visit my cousin because he's suffering. So I, there are kind of like things like that that are harder for me to kind of take off the to-do list because I understand the, the, the pressure and the difficulty of that's kind of inherent in that. And so how, how would we go about that one? Because the need to do it is a Okay, here's the thing. We're not talking about the need to do it. We're talking about the opportunity. And if you are sitting in your meditation session and the thought is, oh, I need to call Judy because Judy's sick. Uh -huh. That's a thought that's going to keep take you out of the state that you're in. A better way to do it is later when you're already in a really, really good state and you think about Judy, that's when you call her right then and says, Judy, I was just thinking about you and I just wanted to call you to cheer you up because I feel so good right now. So I, I guess that's a good point because if we set aside eight hours to work in a day and I set aside one or two hours for errands or something like that, it's time that I've set aside for mundane things, to-do mm -hmm. lists. And so having that time set aside kind of is where I could kind of shuffle the needs in there. And um, if I need to do it, yes, then I'll in do a it. Way, another way of thinking about it is stop setting aside time because you can't do it. Uh -huh. Okay? Just like okay. Uh, uh, the joke is, is when I set my my friend uh, uh, video he says well i'll watch it when i make time and my answer to that was wow how do you do that i don't know how to make time i only know how to spend it yeah but i don't know how to make it and here you are not just making it but you're setting it aside i don't know how to do that well um i guess it comes back to the punishment thing because i tend to if I don't make these plans and these structures, I will be so spontaneous that I just kind of, um, it's kind of like I'll, you know, I, I, I will just maybe not visit people very much or, and then they kind of guilt me about not visiting them or I, maybe I won't do uh, things. And so. In yeah, order, okay, so you have to have a to-do list because you know that if you don't do the items on the to-do list, you'll feel guilty. Something like that, or I just kind of won't forget about them. It's like I have an idea that I think is a good idea or that I want to do, but I just don't have time for it. Like maybe I, maybe it's on my 15-minute lunch break, and I think about uh, going to visit my cousin this weekend. And so I'd really like to do that, but it's at work, and I don't have the time. So I just kind of make a to-do list, visit cousin this weekend, something like that. Okay, except that while you were thinking about the cousin at work, you also had the thought, I don't have time to do that. And there's that dialogue fight. 
There you go. I don't I, I'm thinking about her. I don't have to think about her. If I do think about her and I don't have the time for her, then I've got a conflict. So it's I better to throw those kind of thoughts out of the mind because you're not going to call her anyway. Okay. And so putting it onto a mental to do list is not going to help you at all. OK, OK, I, I, I think I'm kind of getting it. I'm. You need to like manage the thoughts and eventually you get into a state where you're concentrating in the present moment and you're fulfilling your responsibilities if they're whatever those might be. And then your mind will begin to kind of the thoughts will arise when they are applicable, you know, like so the problem would be that I'm having these desires and wants and what I think feel like needs, but they're really just urgent thoughts. And they're not applicable at the time. So the goal or what I the the wise thing to do wouldn't be to kind of put it on a to do list, which I might not do and then feel pressure and guilt and regret, but rather try to begin practicing living in a certain way that is kind of going to allow that thought to arise when it should arise when I'm have some free time and I want to go see my cousin. So it's it, the the strategy of kind of like making the plans and the list is um, not that I shouldn't go visit my cousin or something or it's, it's like kind of managing the thoughts and kind of doing it when they're adding wisdom to the mix, I guess. And, and somehow okay. the whole planning and the needs is causing me suffering because I do just have that endless to-do list. And I, it never gets all the way done. And the few times when I have got it done, I do kind of feel great for a day or two. And then they build up again. And, and so, it's a, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's like why don't you just go ahead and feel great and forget about the list? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we can think of uh, the example that you're using is going to visit a friend. The example that I would use would be going to the bank or going for a visa, or going to fill the car with gas, or whatever. But the question is, how many times do you think about going to visit a friend and then don't visit them? In other words, you visit a friend one time, but you're going to think about visiting them a thousand times, or a hundred times, or twenty times, okay? And every time that we think about them, we put it back on the to-do list, and we feel a little guilty right then and there. The better thing to do is when we think of the friend that we want to go visit, we can say, aha, I see that thought, and that thought is keeping me out of the present moment right now. Let's be joyful right now, because I'm not going to be going to see the friend right now. Okay. I'm not going to the bank right now. Why am I thinking of going to the bank? Hmm. I see. I'm not, I'm not going shopping right now. I am not in Tesco's. Why am I thinking about being in Tesco and thinking about buying something? I'm not in Tesco. Okay, I, I, I get how this is all kind of stringing together. We practice this in meditation and we practice it however we're going to practice it, but we're really training our brain to kind of live in a certain state. And then when we are able to do this over time, 
we kind of get to live in a state of peace. Um, and so maybe I'll end up visiting the friend, but it's not something that I'm going to think about. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to kind of, um, because one of the recurring mystical experiences that I have is spontaneous, no thinking. It's just, it just is very, it's, it's, it's the thinking that I'm so used to identifying with or living with isn't there. And there it, so I understand or I have experienced a way to live that doesn't include the thinking. It's like. Let's use know, instead of the word thinking, let's talk about it um, more precisely and, and start talking about that there are many different kinds of thoughts. And that one of the kinds of thoughts is talking to ourselves or discursive thoughts. Those discursive thoughts are almost always parent. In other words, it's a, it's a language of shoulds, woulds, coulds, ideas, things that should need to be done. There's another kind of discursive thought, and that would be a blow-by-blow -blow description of what you're actually doing right now. So we begin to think about what we're doing right now, and this is how we begin to practice with Anapanasati, is we actually talk to ourselves about breathing that we're doing right here, right now. We begin to experiencing. Now, here's the other point is, is that uh, besides thought that is discursive or word thought, another kind of thought is an observational thought. In other words, if you see somebody coming down the road and then you have a dialogue about the person coming down the road, which is the thought, the seeing the person or the uh, the story that you were telling them? The answer is both. Uh -huh. Both the seeing them and the story is a kind of thought. But also, as you're telling the story or as you're seeing them, you're also feeling something. And when you know what it is that you're feeling, that's also a kind of a thought. So we have experiential thoughts. We have seeing and hearing and touching and tasting uh, uh, and sensational thoughts. We also have emotional thoughts. And when we're spending our time in um, sensual thoughts or in uh, observational kind of thinking, then it's not dialogue. That is almost like, um, how to say it? In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, before television got popular or it existed at all, they would have sports announcers who would give a blow-by-blow -blow description of the baseball game or the football game or boxing or whatever that they were doing, okay? So a blow-by-blow -blow description means that we're actually now using words to talk about exactly what's happening. But between the action, perhaps at halftime or whatever like that, the announcers will also talk about their family and talk about other sports and talk about the news and talk about all kinds of other stuff. But when the game starts again, they go back to the blow by blow description. Okay, so now we have three possibilities. One is, is that you're actually watching 
the match. If you're looking at the match and watching what the match is doing, you're probably not doing a lot of thinking. You're just watching. That's the kind of thought. We're spending our time looking at what's going on. We look with our eyes and whatnot like that. Or we can look at what's going on, like the boxing match, and we do a blow-by-blow -blow description. We tell ourselves a story about what's happening while we're watching the event. Uh -huh. This is very good for meditation, for students to start doing a blow-by-blow -blow description of what they're doing right here, right now. So while I'm scratching the dog, I'm actually paying attention to which what fingers are doing what. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the, th the third kind then is the kind that we mostly do, and that is, is that while I'm scratching the dog and while the fingers are doing fairly complex things, I'm actually thinking about something else altogether. Uh-huh. I'm not thinking about what we're doing. I'm not giving a blow by blow description of what's happening. I'm not even looking at what's happening. I'm actually now having a blow by blow description of a story that I'm making up on the spot. So those are the three kinds of thinking then is the thinking about what's happening now, thinking about things in language that are not happening now, and then the kind of thought that it takes to actually look at what's happening now without giving ourselves a blow-by-blow -blow description of it. And so what we want to do is begin to direct these verbal thoughts to direct them away from the person you want to meet or the store you want to go to or the uh, uh, or whatever that we're having, the thought in the future, never mind, let's come back and instead have thoughts about what's happening right this very instant. Let's have didactic thoughts about what's happening. Oh, the green of the, of the trees is so beautiful. Oh, I can see the swaying of the trees. Now I can actually just look at the swaying of the trees, or I can talk to myself about the swaying of the trees, or I can actually look at the swaying of the trees and think about something else. I guess I've just, some, somewhere along the lines, I seem to have um, thought or come to understand that the goal was to not think at all, just observation and thoughts will kind of arise about the present moment sometimes or not really thoughts but information um, I, I understand that's one of the um, let us say one of the big dangers of Western Buddhism is is seeing goals rather than understanding processes and the goal that you're talking about is the goal of being thoughtless as some sort of a goal. Right. A much better way of understanding it is, is that do you have control over what thoughts you're having rather than trying to stop them altogether? Because they'll stop on their own when we're paying attention to something. In other words, your, your thoughts um, are... Almost always our thoughts 
are nonverbal. Most of our thinking is nonverbal. <coughs> the problem is, is that when the verbal thoughts have nothing to do with the reality of the moment. Like for instance, here you are sitting, taking a deep breath, and then the thought of, oh, I need to go see my friend. And then we take gratification and I need to go see my friend and we'll put that on a to do list or whatever. Yeah. And then we'll have another and then we'll have another thought. Oh, I need to go see another friend. And so we put another one and we take gratification of that. And as we're sitting there, we're thinking of one friend after another that we need to go visit and we're not going to see any of them. And soon our list grows long of things to do. And so what we're practicing here is, is that every time we have a thought of someone else, a friend that I need to go see, I can say, oh, not now. Out you go. I'm going to pay attention to the friends I have right here, right now, and not pay attention to the friends that are not here right now. So it's not about that thoughts are bad. It's about thinking consciously or like thinking about what I want to think about or directing um, because I could sense it feels good when you're in the present moment and it feels good to kind of um, because the desire can be kind of painful in a certain way because it kind of in the desire is um, it's, it's taking gratification that something else could be better because I could go do something else and so it's kind of Displacing the gratification from the present moment into something else or um, and so the problem, I guess, is it seems like I guess the problem is that it's all happening unconsciously and um, that we're tormented by it. And so, well, let us say that we're dissatisfied by finding something that would be better. OK, yeah. that always right now is not good enough because there's something that needs to be done. And when that's done, then things will be better. And here you have a nice long to-do list, which prevents this present moment from being good enough. Mm -hmm. But if yeah. you throw that to-do list out and there is nothing to do right now, now we can finally be satisfied with what is right here, right now. Ready. And so this is the practice of whenever we have thoughts of air, how gratifying that thought is. Piling them on is not a good idea. So let's not have gratifying thoughts about some about going to visit a friend or writing an email or going to the bank or any of that kind of stuff. We can take the gratification instead of, oh, I don't have to do that right now. Ah, there really is nothing right now to do. No place to go and nothing to do. Let me take my gratification right now. And then the thought, I guess, will come. Well, oh, well, I thought about the friend right now and I'm not going to go do it. I better think about her or I'll forget about her altogether and then I won't go visit her. Right? Uh -huh. The answer to that is, well, if you thought about her now, you'll think about her again, and that again time may be more opportune to call her. There will be other opportunities to do what needs to be done. Right now, I'm going to take the opportunity to not do anything at all. 
I'm going to be satisfied right now. And so we need to cultivate that situation of being satisfied because there's no end of the things that you can think of that need to be done. Mm -hmm. And every one of them will be gratifying on its own, but the whole pile of them is a city dump. Yeah. Um, it is the feeling of gratification in the present moment. Is this a kind of, I, I keep going back to balance or something like that because I've been trying to, um, it just seems like that there is a kind of a feeling that, um, it's like a compass or it's like a balance. And so we could feel, or maybe I'm just exploring the idea of kind of being able to sense how present I'm being based off of this feeling of gratification, or it seems to be like there is some kind of, I, I say compass because it gives us direction about, um, or information about what our mind is doing. And so if we're able to kind of begin to find this balance or center of being gratified in the present moment, one of the questions I had is, how consistent is that feeling? Does it always feel it? Obviously, nothing is going to feel the same forever. But is there some kind of home base or a certain frequency or a certain feeling of gratification that we're going to feel kind of consistently, perhaps in higher or lower degrees? But, How about um, when you think about it? So having thoughts of gratification or excuse me, of um, uh thoughts of uh, appreciation, thoughts of uh, everything is okay, thoughts of uh, gratitude, everything is fine, everything is all right. So those are the kind of thought of wholesome thoughts that we would have that have to do with what's happening right now. Okay, um, real quick. What does what does gratitude mean or feel like? Is because um, I mean it seems like a basic question, but like um, gratitude and satisfaction. I mean, I don't think they're the exact same thing, but I just kind of feeling gratified is. Um, they're I don't know, related. It's like I don't feel very often. Yeah. Right. So that that's then that's something that can be cultivated is explore what it feels like to be gratified or to feel um, um, grateful that you're given a gift, this breath. Wow, isn't this great? I didn't have to do anything other than just receive it as a gift. So it's kind of like happy for no reason. If you're just grateful and gratified, normally I'm so used to being gratified by getting the shiny toy or uh, having someone cute smile at me. Like gratification has always been externalized and I haven't been able to figure out how to just be grateful. I mean, sometimes it happens. Well, but... with this breath, okay, start tr then practicing be being gratified by the very uh, things that surround you at this particular point of time when you're practicing gratitude. In other words, find things that you are grateful for that are right here, right now. 
Well, I'm really glad I do not have to go to the bathroom right now. Okay, I, d I have a good one for that. Okay, I know I definitely remember what that feeling is. One time I had the most gratification I've felt, and it was one of the biggest times in my life. I had something caught in my eye, something got in my eye, and it tormented me for a day or two. And every day it hurt. And then when it stopped, the next day, I remember thinking, man, I'm so grateful that thing isn't stuck in my eye anymore. And oh, so I am glad to see that yeah. gone. Okay, so glad. Gladdening the mind is a kind of gratification uh, or um, gratitude or satisfaction. Yes, these things are there are various uh, English language words, but they do have a relationship with. Satisfaction is deeply related to gratification and gladdening. If we use satisfaction, that's a little bit better, I think, over the years I've taught and many I used to talk about it in the sense of. Um, uh, joy. And the students would come back and say, yes, I've got joy. It's just not enough joy. I want more joy which means that they're not satisfied with the joy that they have. Because we're always wanting more and more and more. So the place to come to is a sense of being gra uh, grateful for or satisfied with that which we have right now. Doesn't need anything extra. Right now is absolutely fine. That really is that that is really the key point for satisfaction is that you know, satisfaction doesn't include wanting more. Being being satisfied is like the end of wanting more. You're okay with the way things are now, and mm -hmm. um, so you could be. And I do see that the similarity. You could be grateful for nothing, you, or you could talk yourself into what you're grateful for, and um, you know, you could be satisfied for nothing. You don't have to have an external it's we're so used to getting everything done by the external you know something happens and i feel grateful for it something happens and it's just learning to cultivate things is um it just seems kind of foreign and kind of like a magic thing at first you're like how do i just cultivate things and now i'm and as we talk about it it's not like i'm just supposed to be like i'm so grateful for this blue pen and maybe i could do that someday but probably the easier thing to do would be like, oh, I'm thirsty. I'm grateful for the water. Mm-hmm. As, as I'm drinking the water, I can feel the water, the coolness. I can feel the wetness in the throat, and I actually experience the drinking of the water with gratitude. Yeah. And then I write what I want to write with gratitude. So I just got to – it's a skill. You got to build it up. And um, mm -hmm. it's not just about – fabricating it from nothing maybe that is a higher level thing but for me baby steps i guess and kind of talk use the dialect to kind of talk myself into it and that must be something that helps right. keep everything we don't present. have to even think of it as uh, bringing gratitude for nothing then in fact what we can say is oh i can learn I can teach myself and learn to be grateful for all of the many tens of millions of things that are happening right here, right now. Yeah, that's what was so confusing is that I was, I guess I was kind of, maybe I learned it wrong that cultivation is about sitting in meditation and just cultivating love. 
And and for some reason, for me, I thought that you don't think about things that make you feel love. You just sit there and generate the feeling as if it came from nothing, rather than thinking, I'm going to think about someone that I love, or I'm going to think about something that I love, and then the million things that I love. And so I guess that was the the missing piece that somehow I thought... Yes, in fact, because all of those things that you can think of to love, you don't have them right here, right now. Right. Let's learn to love the things that we're with while we're sitting in isolation from all of those things and all those people out there. Let's learn to be gratified by what we have right now, the touch of the cloth on the skin, the arising and the falling of the abdomen. In other words, uh, uh, what's happening right now is the Anapanasati of how do we feel right now? How do we feel with this breath? How do we, in other words, we begin to feel grateful for literally being alive right here, right now. What is it that gives us the feeling of aliveness? (laughs) Yeah, it's the body. Everything is functioning by itself and. It's just, I guess, I, I don't know why I didn't tr- try and ask someone or talk about it because it's, and it was confusing. I was like, you know, it's, um, but now it's kind of all making sense, you know, the goal of what we're supposed to be, maybe not the goal, but what feels the best or how the process works. It's not just about cultivating love for those things. It's about using those tools as a way to kind of get into a present moment state and to train and to kind of learn to live from this state, because I, I understand that's the real, I hesitate to say goal, but it kind of is the goal. It's the goal. Well, is, wait, uh, except that it's yeah. an immediate goal. Let's not think about it in, uh, in, in, the, in the sense of that. Let's talk about a goal is something that's way off in the future. And the things that we're talking about, the goals that we're talking about are immediately available Uh within the next five or 10 seconds. Okay. Do we need to make a new word for that or is it, uh, what should we call it then instead of a goal anchoring, maybe anchoring seems like. Be here now. Anchoring, be in here now. And that's what everything is trying to get us into this anchoring in the present moment. It's mm-hmm. clicking, light bulb clicking. So um, I feel like the end of our lesson is coming up because I learned a lot. I have a lot to do and mm-hmm. a lot to um, very grateful for everything. So um, <laughs> there you go. Right, exactly. Yeah. You're feeling good about this. This is this is good. Yes, let's go ahead and finish the call. It's been a while and I've got another caller. So um, but this is a good point to stop with gratitude. Yes. All right. I'm anchored in gratitude. I'm going to go do some uh, stuff and go anchor again and then go to sleep. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow on the call. Okay. We'll see you soon. Sounds good. See you tomorrow. Okay. Bye-bye. See ya.